All right, well, it's great to be with you this morning. Thank you. And, and this morning, I'm wondering if you remember or have heard of the bite fight between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. This bizarre fight took place on June 28, 1997, for the heavyweight championship. Newsweek recently said this about it. They said, even by boxing's absurd standards, this incident was so astonishing that it remains hard to comprehend, even 24 years later. Here's what happened. With 40 seconds left in the third round, Tyson got Holyfield in a clinch and proceeded to bite a chunk out of Holyfield's right ear. And then, shockingly, he spat the chunk out on the canvas. I mean, what was he thinking, right? There was a referee right there. They were in front of a packed house at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and the fight was being broadcast around the world. This is the rage of a man who's out of control. Tyson was being dominated by Holyfield in the fight, so he lashed out impulsively and recklessly in anger. And afterwards, Tyson said, I was furious. I was an undisciplined soldier who lost his composure, so I bit him in the ear. I wanted to kill him. So that heavyweight fight, it's an extreme example of uncontrolled rage. But don't we experience rage too? Just in smaller and less public ways, like when somebody cuts you off on the road, right? Or when the internet stops working. But now I'd like you to shift gears. Think about the wrath of God. Think about it. If you imagine it like the rage of that boxer, you're so wrong. God is in complete control of his wrath. He's not like the person who can't rule over his spirit. God is the master of his wrath. So he has full command of it. He can restrain it and let it out perfectly. And don't get me wrong. This is real wrath. That's why the scripture describes it as passionate, rapid breathing, nostril flaring, wrath. He's storing it up for the future, and he'll bring it forth at his pleasure. Now, with an angry person who's out of control, you can typically wait for them to calm down and find some way to compromise. But when the offense is a matter of principle, that's a much more serious situation. Mere compromise won't satisfy. The principle that was violated must be set right. That's why we should fear offending God above all, because we violated his righteousness, and we rightly deserve his wrath. The principle is righteousness, and more specifically, God's righteousness. There's a legal sense to it. God's law demands that we live blamelessly before him, and because of who he is, God must judge us according to his perfect moral standard. That's his moral law. So then, if we violate his righteousness, 
his wrath towards us is totally justified. But we're going to see how this righteousness, or yes, how, how, how this righteousness is also an expression of God's grace. So grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, that's page 941, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, and also take out the sermon outline in your bulletin. We're going to look at Romans 3.21 through 26 this morning, so we consider reason number three, why Jesus came to die, and the answer, to satisfy God's wrath. But as you're turning, stop briefly in Romans chapter 1. Because this sets the context for what we're about to read in chapter 3 concerning God's wrath. The Apostle Paul has just finished saying that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their uprightness suppress the truth. So now, let's read our text in that context. So Romans 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're going to look at three aspects of God's wrath this morning. First, the reason for God's wrath. Second, the remedy for God's wrath. And third, the reality of God's wrath. So let's start with the reason. First point in your outline. So we'll start by considering it from the perspective of God's righteousness and then our human sinfulness. So let me ask you, did you notice how many times in this passage it referred to the righteousness of God Four times in six verses. It must be important. So what's at stake? God's justice is at stake. God must be right in the way he administers justice. And not just simply right some of the time. No, all the time. And every time. In all things and in all ways. He must be right. Not that he's subject to any law himself. But because this is his nature, this is who God is, altogether holy. Psalm 77, 13, that declares, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great, like our God. So when his holy standard is violated, it offends him. It's high treason. He's not an ordinary judge who administers someone else's legal system. No. Instead, he gives laws which are a reflection of his own character. 
So he can't merely overlook the offenses. That wouldn't be right for him to do. It wouldn't be righteous judgment. And if God is going to put anyone who's offended him into a right relationship with him, he must deal with the offenses. Now, how can we better understand the righteousness of God? Well, for starters, by reading the Old Testament. The end of verse 21, you see it? It tells us that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. How so? Well, God gave his law to the people through Moses so that they could be his people. In Exodus 19.5, he said to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You see, the people of God must be holy because God is holy. But Scripture tells us time and time again how God's people fail to keep the law. That's a problem. Because God must uphold his righteous requirement for his people. So if anything's to be done about it, God must do it himself. Like in Ezekiel 36, 22, where God says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. If God's people fail, then he must be the one to act. But if he acts, he must act justly. There's no other way. So let me try and illustrate this for you. When I was in high school, it was a long time ago, I had a math teacher who gave difficult exams. No one ever got 100% right, ever. So he graded on a curve. And after he scored the exams, he'd hand them back to us and write all of our scores uh, on the chalkboard, no names, just the scores, and he listed them all in descending order from the highest to the lowest. And then he would say, hmm, let me see. Where should I draw the line for those who get an A on the exam? And then he'd draw the line somewhere, and you'd hear a few people cheer and a few others groan. Right? And then he'd continue to draw the lines until he'd separated out all the grades, including those who'd failed. Now that worked for my math teacher. But can God grade us like that? No, he can't. Why? Why? His own righteousness won't permit it. You see, all those math exams, they still had errors on them. Even the people who scored highest received an A. They made mistakes. But God's standard is perfection. Perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. So grading on the curve will not do. Perfection is the requirement. Anything short of perfection is failure. Which brings us to the dilemma. Point B, the sinfulness of humanity. Now let's be clear here, because we live in a world of distinctions, don't we? 
There are distinctions between students, which ones get the best grades in school. Distinctions at work, based on your pay or your responsibilities. There are distinctions when you fly, which ones get to sit in first class. And there were distinctions in Paul's day, too. None of them bigger than the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. So because we live in a world of distinctions, we think they matter. In particular, we think they matter in terms of God's righteousness. But the end of verse 22 answers that question for us, doesn't it? In a most definitive way. Do you see it? There is no distinction. Hard to misunderstand that. We're in serious error if we think we deserve anything from God, that we somehow distinguished ourselves from the rest of humanity. The only thing we deserve is punishment for our sinfulness. All people deserve punishment, this punishment from God, without distinction. And that means God's wrath is stored up for us. Remember the context of Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But Paul reiterates that point earlier in chapter 3. Just take a look at verse 9. He begins his argument this way. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But Paul summarizes that thought right here in verse 23 in our passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all the distinctions we make, we lack what's most important. We lack the righteousness of God. We can't achieve any glory in the sight of God. Now what should we conclude from all this? Here it is. If there are no distinctions, and if we all shall fall short, then no one can save themselves. No one. Your efforts to justify yourself before God are completely futile. In fact, they're offensive to God. You're just storing up more and more of, your, of God's wrath for yourself. You have no standing before God on your own merits. You lack the righteousness that God requires. So, here's a quick illustration Did you know that when a drowning victim is in panic, they can be almost impossible to save? They'll even grab onto a person that tries to rescue them and take them down with them. It's not that they want to hurt their their, their rescuer. They're just desperate to stay afloat. And a person who's in panic, they can be super strong. So the easiest drowning victim is the one who's given up trying to save themselves. And if a lifeguard doesn't have a flotation device, they have to wait until the victim has exhausted themselves before they can grab them and bring them to safety. Yet, that's only an illustration. The problem of our sin is much greater 
than drowning. The Bible's clear. We're already dead in our trespasses. We've violated God's law. We deserve his wrath, and we can't save ourselves. Is there a remedy for this desperate situation? Yes, but our sin prevents us from contributing anything to the solution. God must solve the problem by his own action, and he's done just that. So please look at the second point in your outline, which is the remedy for God's wrath. We'll consider four things that are covered in our text. A, faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. B, received as a gift through Christ's redeeming work. C, God himself provided the sacrifice. And D, God is both just and justifier. And notice this. Verse 22 is still talking about the righteousness of God, but it carries important context from the previous verse, verse 21, which said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does that mean? It means that we're living in a new time in salvation history. The system of law-keeping That was a witness to God's righteousness in the past, but now God has made righteousness evident apart from the law. So how has God done that? How has he made it evident to us apart from the law? He sent his son to fulfill the law. He did it through the gospel. It was accomplished through Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection made the righteousness of God visible for us in a new way. What he accomplished was a way for sinful people to be justified with God. Look at verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God. And how does that come? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here is the way that any person can be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ must become the object of that person's faith. Any person. God has determined that salvation comes solely on the basis of faith. That means you don't look to yourself for the basis of your salvation. You look to Christ. It means you don't trust in your own good works for your salvation. You trust in Christ's finished work. It means your hope rests completely on what Christ has done for you. And who's this salvation for? It's for all who believe. There are no distinctions from in sinfulness of, of people. We've, we've all sinned. We saw, clearly saw that. That means we all deserve God's wrath without distinctions. But there are also no distinctions for people who become justified with God before God. All who believe are relying fully on Jesus Christ for their righteousness. No exceptions. Now let's think about this for a moment. How can people become Justified with God without distinctions. 
means that the righteousness can't be earned in any way. It can't be deserved according to our works in any way. The way you become justified before God can't be any different from the person sitting next to you. It can't be different from the person in the next town or across the country or halfway around the world. Does that make sense? It can't come to you because of your culture, your gender, or your family heritage. It must be a gift. That's how there are no distinctions. And that's what verse 24 tells us. See it? All who are saved from God's wrath are justified by his grace as a gift. But how does the gracious gift of Christ's righteousness come to us? Verse 24 again. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the work that is Christ's work, it's not ours. And what's the nature of that work? It's a redeeming work. What does that mean? Generally speaking, it means we're released. Christ's work releases us from what? From the penalty of sin, which is God's wrath. That is, his perfect judgment. We're released, released from having to pay that penalty. We couldn't pay it. No one can pay that price. Christ had to pay it for us, and that's what he did. That was his work, his redeeming work, his free gift for all who believe. Oh, so, you know, when, when someone gives you something, don't you feel the desire to reciprocate that's because you generally see yourself as prosperous, not needy. Even if you admit to needing a few things, you probably don't see yourself as destitute. But when it comes to our spiritual condition, the Bible tells us we're living in extreme poverty. We're spiritually destitute. In fact, we have nothing. Is that how you see yourself, spiritually? Or do you cling to the delusion that you still bring something to the table? But what is the situation that Matthew 5, 6 describes? Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hear what he's saying? To receive God's righteousness, you must see that you are living in complete spiritual poverty, hungry and thirsty for what you need and don't have. Only Jesus can satisfy what you need. May God open your eyes to see it and receive it from God's hand as a free gift. And I plead with you to place your complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the redeeming work of Christ Jesus. And there's, there's more to this redemption because it's also a liberation. A liberation from the bondage to the power of sin because we're not only guilty of sin, 
We're enslaved to it. We can't break free without the work of Christ. The idea of redemption brings up the imagery of how God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And it follows that this liberation was a gift of God's grace. Deuteronomy 7.7, it makes this very clear. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's grace. God did it because he chose to love them and fulfill his promise to them. So we're incapable of saving ourselves from God's wrath. If salvation is a gift from God, then he must satisfy his wrath on our behalf. We have nothing to offer, so God must do it all. That's what we see in verse, the beginning of verse 25. See it? Whom, referring to Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his, Jesus' blood, to be received by faith. When it says that God put him forward, it means that God presented the remedy for his wrath for all to see. It was a public display. God the Father set forth his purpose in Christ so that it would be visible to the world. What was his solution? Christ as our substitute. He receives the wrath we deserve. He stands in our place. So Paul would have us picture the Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16 when we hear this solution. If you're not familiar with it, it describes the holy place in the tabernacle where once a year the high priest would offer God's prescribed sacrifice to take care of the sins of the people of Israel. It involved offering the blood of the sacrifice on something called the mercy seat, where bulls and goats and the rest were sacrificed. The seat was on the Ark of the Covenant between two cherubs in the most holy place. It was the ultimate place of sacrifice for Israel. And so, to complete the idea... God has presented Jesus to us and to all the world as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement for sin. No other sacrifice is needed. He's done it all on the cross. And God put forward this as a remedy for our sin. The death of Jesus Christ is completely sufficient to satisfy God's wrath if we will only place our trust, full trust in his righteous sacrifice. Now, do you feel the tension in this solution? Do you feel it? Can God simultaneously be loving towards us and wrathful against us? Here he is, the judge in the courtroom. But he also stands in our place as the condemned criminal. 
That may seem like a strange scene to our eyes, but we should not think of Christ as the kind son intervening and holding back the the wrath of the vengeful father. The remedy for God's wrath is the solution given to us by the entire Godhead. There is complete harmony between Father, Son, and Spirit. So God, as judge, condemns us as sinners, deserving the death penalty, and then he steps down to take our place. Before the cross, people couldn't see the righteousness of God as clearly as we can see it now. Look at the end of verse 25. This is speaking of the time before Christ's death. It says, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God's forbearance made it appear that God was indifferent to sin. Of course, there were episodes of judgment in the Old Testament, but nothing close to what human sin deserved. God overlooked sin for a time. Why couldn't God do that indefinitely? Why couldn't he just overlook sin for all eternity? Well, Let me ask you this. Would that show us the righteousness of God? Would it? Wouldn't it make us picture him like a senile old man because he doesn't notice? Wouldn't it make him seem like a distant deity because he doesn't give a rip about morality? Wouldn't it make him appear more corrupt than just because he looks the other way? But God is our judge who sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. He's delayed his due judgment, but not forever. He's delayed in anticipation of his solution for the sin problem, the coming Messiah. So the sacrifice of Christ has changed absolutely all of history. The cross of Christ made God's inherent justice clear and visible. Now we can see that God is righteous in judgment. As it says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, and now comes the pinnacle of God's glory, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at the present time, God's wrath and God's love for those who have faith in Jesus have both become perfectly visible to us at the same time and in the same way. They come together at the greatest and most momentous time in human history. The death of Jesus on the cross shows us how God is just on one hand, and justifier, on the other hand, both at the same time. He poured out his full wrath on Jesus as our substitute to fully satisfy his justice, and the ones who have faith in Jesus are justified by his righteous standing, Jesus's before God. So there's no tension. There's no conflict. God is able to maintain his just character towards sin 
and justify his people so they're brought to glory. So is this just a big theological discussion? Or do we need to be concerned about how it impacts us? I want to convince you that God's wrath is very real. That's the final point in your outline. God's wrath doesn't go away if we ignore it. It must be satisfied one way or the other. This is really about how you will spend eternity. Will the wrath that you deserve be poured out on Christ as your substitute, or will it be poured out on you because you're without faith in Jesus? It's a difficult reality, but an urgent one. So let's consider three applications. This is our final point. How should we relate to God's wrath as we practically live our lives? Let's look at it in three contexts. God's wisdom, patience, and righteousness. First, consider the wisdom of God. Now you might be thinking it's hard to trust the God like this. I mean, he has so much power. We'd be suspicious of any earthly judge that had this much power. I mean, God can judge whom he pleases, and he can justify whomever he pleases. That's absolute power. Maybe you want to run from him. Maybe he makes you nervous. Maybe you don't understand him. Maybe you're skeptical of his motivations. Maybe you're ashamed to even approach him. I get it. Some of these feelings are appropriate. But we also feel like this because we don't know him. Not really. So God gives us passages like this one so that we can see both his kindness and his severity. As Paul later concludes in Romans eleven twenty two. But we're not dealing with a God whose personality lashes out randomly in anger like that boxer. We're dealing with a wise God who, can, who we can trust with our eternal future. Wasn't his plan to become just and justifier, wise. It was so wise. And wasn't it gracious and merciful? It was unbelievably gracious and merciful. And what should we conclude about our God? As it says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Do you see? His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. He does all things well. 
So do you rejoice like this in the wisdom of God? Instead, don't you nervously say things like, I'm trying to trust God, but I hope he knows what he's doing. Or arrogantly say, I know what God should do for me if he'd only cooperate. And if you don't actually speak those things, you do say them to yourselves, don't you? You need to truly know the wisdom of God and then act on that knowledge. Just consider what the scriptures say he's done for you. And if the God of the universe has such kind intentions towards you, can't you trust him with every area of your life? And I mean every area of your life, your relationships, your family, your money, your work, your time, your thoughts, and even the deepest and most complex places in your heart that only you and God know about. He's so wise, so worthy of our trust. But second, don't misinterpret the patience of God. God is our judge, but he has not yet judged us for our sins. He's not yet poured out his wrath in full measure. So how do you read God's delayed judgment? Do you think he's powerless? Do you think he's lazy? Do you think he's careless? He's none of these things. Heed the warning of Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I plead with you this morning to repent and believe on Jesus Christ as your substitute. Only his sacrifice can satisfy the wrath of God and give you eternal life. If God merely overlooked your sin, then his wrath wouldn't be turned away and your judgment must eventually come. Avoiding punishment is not the same thing as dealing with the guilt of your sin. You don't want the prospect of God's judgment hanging over you. What God is offering to you is far superior. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And finally, think again how often the righteousness of God was stressed in our passage this morning. Verse 25 showed us how God's righteousness was vindicated. How did he vindicate himself? 
He put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Jesus demonstrated to all the world how our wise and patient God is able to bring the attributes of wrath, justice, mercy, and love all together in perfect harmony and all together in perfect righteousness. And in case the full weight of that hasn't landed on you yet, notice that it was to show God's righteousness. That's why he did it. So doesn't that expose how self-centered we can be? That we think the main idea of this story is how we're going to heaven. Don't we like it best when we're told how much God loves us? That's part of it. It's not the main part. God himself is the central figure in this story. Not us. The vindication of his righteousness is the main idea. So it's all about God's character, God's holiness, God's glory, and God's righteousness for all eternity. And that has implications in the way we live our lives, in the here and in the now. For instance, what would it look like if you lived less for your own glory and more for the glory of God? What would that look like? What if you thought more of God and less of yourself? Wouldn't that mean you start putting his will above your own will? Wouldn't that mean you start taking steps to live for the sake of God's righteousness? Putting sin to death in your life? And not because you can impress God, but because you belong to God. You're His. You're redeemed by Christ for a purpose. You don't have to fear the wrath of God any longer. But that doesn't mean you can live as you please. Rather, because it's all about God, your life is now consumed with doing good works, all for his glory and for his name. And as we conclude, think back to that wild, uncontrollable rage of that boxer I spoke about. God is not anything like that. He's in complete control of everything. And that includes his wrath, which he'll pour out righteously, righteously in judgment. And it includes his salvation, which he freely gives to any who believe in Jesus, which frees us to worship him in righteousness. So let me leave you with this thought. It's great to sing about the love of God, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, God is love. But we don't often say, God is wrath. Even though that is one of his attributes. Yet we still sing about it. 
And what makes it great to sing about? It's when the wrath of God is satisfied. We sing in Christ alone with these words, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And you live if you're in Christ. So let's submit to God's God's kind intentions towards us. Let's worship him together in righteousness and rejoice in our great God. And we do this by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that you are who you are. We're so glad that you give us verses like this so that we can understand you. Your kindness and your severity. Thank you so much for giving us a way that the wrath of Jesus or the wrath of God could be satisfied and poured out on Jesus as our substitute. And for any who don't know you, Lord, and who are not in you, I pray that their hearts would be turned this morning. In Christ's name.